This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. I don't know about you, but I've seen more data visualizations in the past six months than I did in the previous six years. Bar charts, heat maps, logarithmic graphs. In fact, the most popular posted on the COVID-19 blog that I edit at the LSE is called The Public Do Not Understand Logarithmic Graphs Used to Portray COVID-19. And if you don't know the difference between a linear and a logarithmic graph, don't worry, you are very far from alone. Data feels like it ought to be reliable, impartial, unambiguous, but it can be none of those things. And with me to talk about some of the ways it can be manipulated to mislead us is Jevin D. West, the author with Carl T. Bergstrom of Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. He's a data scientist and associate professor at the University of Washington. Jevin, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. This is fun. Oh, good. (laughs) This book grew out of a course you teach. When did you realize that this was so badly needed? So this happened far before the pandemic and even far before the US 2016 US election where everyone started to talk about fake news. My colleague Carl Bergstrom and I had been putting together examples and sending emails back and forth in the middle of the night or or whenever we found strange things in reviews that we were doing or things in our personal life for years before that. So I would say the efforts behind this class and this book focused on misinformation wrapped in data sort of started, I would have about 2014, 2015. So really about the time that Twitter took off and we all started posting and reposting and sharing loads of data on there. Exactly. And and a lot of my, my time outside of this effort now fighting misinformation um, has been in creating curriculum and teaching classes and doing research in data science. And one thing that I realized in doing this and running a lab, I, I, I co-direct and co-founded a lab called the Data Lab at the University of Washington with my colleagues. And one of the re- things I realized with graduate students and undergraduates, and, and actually the public more generally, was that they were very good at the mechanics of statistics or computer science, but had a hard time questioning data in the same ways that we question language and rhetoric. And so it led to this effort of figuring out how can we bring this uh, this questioning to data in the same ways we do, in the same way the humanities do to, to language and rhetoric. In the book, you explain that the number of graphs uh, and visualizations we come across has exploded. Why is that? Yeah, it really has. One, the software is available to do that. And I think the world has moved more and more to quantifying everything. It's kind of how science works. And in many ways, I think that can be a good thing. But in some ways, it can also be a bad thing, partly because data can be misleading, just like language and argument, but also because it does seem objective and precise, like your introduction to this podcast today. I loved your introduction to it. Um, There's this preciseness about it. It's, It's almost as if data comes falling from the skies and lands hard on our desk and you just can't question it. But in fact, 
we can. And th- this, this increase of charts, like you say, in our newspapers, in social media, in business meetings, in university, um, at universities, has, has, has really, I think, required a need to, to get better at calling BS when it does come in that form. And Donald Trump has an interesting relationship with data, doesn't he? I mean, you can sense him trying to find insight and failing. I mean, you could say, for example, he was excessively aware of selection bias when it comes to to COVID testing, couldn't you? Well, I think Jonathan Swan's recent interview (laughs) really really revealed um, how data and graphs can be used to make arguments that can be misleading. I mean, that was perfect uh, uh, marketing. Carl and I promised that it wasn't something we paid for, for marketing, (laughs) because that particular interview came out the same day that our book was launched. Um, and so, yes, I mean, he, he certainly has, and, and sometimes by mistake and sometimes prob- maybe not by mistake. And, and people do this all the time. And things like selection bias that you mentioned is one of those things that if we could all focus a little bit more on what that means. So selection bias is this idea of sampling a part of the, the, the population that doesn't represent the population. So if I wanted to measure the, if I wanted to understand uh, or know the height, the average height of the world, I certainly wouldn't go to an NBA uh, basketball practice and measure the NBA players to get the average height of the, uh, the population. And, and, and that's, that's the case for many of the kinds of analyses we do, but we all fall prey to it, which is why we devote an entire chapter. We, we quibbled on this forever saying, okay, let's do a section on it. Let's do a, oh, multiple sections. Pretty soon we said, this should be an entire chapter and maybe it'll be an entire book at one point. <laughs> And your book doesn't read like a data science textbook at all, really. I mean, at one point, you explain how Freud himself admitted he was bullshitting after he delivered a a lecture on cocaine. That's one of my favorite quotes, by the way. I love that. Very funny. And in the chapter where you highlight particularly bad data visualizations, I was actually laughing out loud. And, you know, obviously, that's partly because I have to do it. But it was very, very funny. Um, But you set out ways that we can spot bullshit without necessarily having a degree in statistics or even maybe an A-level in further maths, whatever. And tell us about why people feel that they can't interrogate data. I mean, some of them obviously can't, but I mean, why, why there's this problem and they feel that it's, it's cut off from them? Well, I think part of it is due to our education system. We're at fault. You know, our education system at, at the high school level, at the, at the college level, um, I think we're not doing a good enough job preparing people to do more than just the mechanics. Like, here's how you calculate, you know, a p-value, or here's how you calculate, you know, how here's how to, you know, run a random forest algorithm or whatever. I, we we don't we don't talk about the 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 parts of of the data pipeline that are usually the cause of misleading arguments, which is the data input. Um, and that's just, tell me more about where the data came from. Be curious about the data. How did it collect it? You know, was it a, was, is it a representative of the population or after the analysis is done? So, out, but, you know, we call it the black box where the analysis is done. Avoid that for now. You don't need to, you don't, don't avoid it, but don't worry about that for now. Focus on these other aspects. And what you're saying is one of the most important things that we wanted the, to come out of the book was that you don't need a PhD in statistics or computer science or any other domain to be able to call BS on data. And we wanted to write it in a fun way because data investigation and being curious about data can be a lot of fun. We, this is the way we see the world. So we wanted to convey that in the book and empower people to go out there and not make them more intimidated 
which is kind of what the education system, I think, is doing right now. I think we want to make it so that anyone or, or, or show that anyone can do it and empower them. What's the most common pitfall that we fall into when we look at data, if you had to choose one? I think probably the most common one is correlation and causation, mixing those things up. Because as humans, we look for causative explanations. So if we are told, here's a drug, you take the drug and my fever drops, or I, now I don't have COVID symptoms anymore, you want to see that causative link. There's, there's good reason. Our brains are, are built that way for good reason, because we're looking for these causative links. But the problem is we also fall very prey to this, this, cor- this correlation versus causation issue. And it's funny because when we tell students, you know, we start to talk about correlation and causation, they always sort of nod their heads. Yes, correlation doesn't imply causation. They think they know it. And then we start giving them tests and they realize how difficult it is and how I- ill-prepared they really are. We all need practice at it. So I think one of my favorite papers, we, I think we mentioned this in the book, was a paper that was published, sort of tongue, obviously tongue-in-cheek, but um, an author put in uh, collected the number of storks by country and the number of babies born by country and then put them on uh, X and Y axis. And so um, you see this upward trend. So you could make the claim that storks there, therefore must deliver babies because in countries where there's more storks, there's more babies. Well, an easy explanation, an alternative explanation for that is that bigger countries have more storks and bigger countries have more babies. So what we try to do is we do these diagrams in class and we actually do it in the book often, very simple diagrams that can help us get better at not jumping to causative conclusions when in fact it might just be correlation. There might be a better alternative explanation. In the book, you mention actually it's in a footnote, that you don't really like pie charts. And I mean, pie charts are one of the simplest ways you can probably think of of presenting data. Even my seven-year-old son has to learn about them at school. Well, what's wrong with pie charts? Yeah, pie charts are a funny thing because we do say that they're not the best. And we look to the research and we look to our colleagues in HCI, this human-computer interaction and information visualization. And they tend not to like them, partly because it's harder to tell the difference between categories in a pie chart than they are in a bar chart where you can put vertical lines next to each other. We're good at separating those things, but estimating circle areas turns out to be quite difficult. Now, I I don't think they're the worst by any means. Um, There's far worse visualizations out there and certainly a 3D pie chart. Now now you've got my feathers ruffled and I'll start to just be a little (laughs) bit more offended by that particular usage. But pie charts, um, they're used, like you say, a lot. And, and they're not terrible because they do represent a proportion. If you're just trying to get a feel for the proportion of the different units um, uh, that are being uh, analyzed, then yes, they're okay. It's just harder to get exact estimates like you can with a line or with bar charts. And so we tend to say, let's use those instead. But certainly they're not the most offensive out there. And you can see that if you read our book, we have plenty of examples of far more offensive ones. Can you tell us as, as briefly as possible about p-values and what the p-hack is, why it, why it matters so much? Yeah, p-values are a really um, important concept, um, but they're sort of abused, not just in the public or in the media, but certainly also within science. They're used as a way to make a statistical argument. Um, and there's this arbitrary number in there. So point, we use the value p equals 0.05. And at this value, that's when, for whatever reason, and actually there are good reasons, it's not surprising, that editors tend to want to publish things that fall below this value, which means it has 
you know, quote unquote, a statistical significant. And, and of course, we could spend the entire podcast explaining how it works. In fact, we use a different way of explaining it in the book. We use what's called the prosecutor's fallacy or the prosecutor's uh, sort of uh, narrative for explaining p-values. But the problem with this p-value at 0.05, it could be at 0.03, it could be at 0.02, it could be at 0.07. The problem is that if you put a, a, a number of 0.05, then researchers, when they find results at less than that, they, they might feel more inclined to publish, as will the editors. And so what happens is that, one, you get some sort, you get sometimes what's called publication bias. So you get Re, uh, uh, research results that are showing the po- statistically positive results, um, and you don't get a lot of the negative results. So we see, ah, the drug worked, the drug worked, the drug worked. But in fact, you might have the drug didn't work, didn't work, didn't work, didn't work. <laughs> all these others that didn't work, but it don't, they don't get published. And so p-hacking then is individuals that will go and do analysis on different cross-sections of the data until they get a, point o- a p-value of less than 0.05. And so that can be very problematic because if, if you do that, um, then essentially what you're doing is you're just looking until you get that result. And the p-value doesn't guarantee that it's positive or negative. It just says with you know, one out of every 20 chances, you're, you're going to get um, a result that actually wouldn't be the, that the case. So it's, it's really, to be technical, technical about it, p-value is this evidence, evidence against a null hypothesis. So the smaller the p-value the stronger that evidence, you should reject the null hypothesis. That's that's sort of how it's defined in a lot of books, but that's but that's much more technical. The main thing is that people will see this, journalists will see this, um, and they need to be careful that there are ways in which that's misused, even in the scientific literature. Speaking of bias, uh, sometimes it feels like we're all amateur epidemiologists now. And what's the most common mistake people are making when they try to track the progress of the pandemic, as some people are doing, you know, almost quite obsessively? Is it the way we filter data according to what we already believe or want to believe? Um, or is it is it something else? Yes. Yeah, so isn't this interesting during this pandemic that we've seen a lot of armchair epidemiologists, adjacent experts? And in many ways, I actually in- encourage that. I mean, I, I like the fact that people are really engaging with the data I do say that, that, that there is definitely a difference between a person, though, that's been thinking and working about on this issues of epidemiology for 20, 30 years of their career versus someone maybe who was, uh, you know, a marketing data scientist in Silicon Valley that now has, you know, has some data skills, but is, you know, is making certain claims and those claims that sometimes get amplified uh, by social media and national media, I think um, can be problematic. However, I do think it's, it's useful that people are out there. Now, one of the more common mistakes are kinds of things that we talk about in our book, like selection bias, for example. So I just mentioned that selection bias issue. Well, there was one particular story, at least in the US, that went viral. There were two doctors uh, in Bakersfield, California, that had done um, some extrapolation based on positive uh, COVID tests that they had in their clinic. And the claim that they were mating, making when they extrapolated is, is that the, the death rate was much, much lower than was being reported by other epidemiologists because of the results that they had. The problem is that they, were, that they had a major selection bias issue. They were only considering individuals that were coming to their clinic, which likely had, um, you know, they were sick already that, or, or, had, or had sort of symptoms of COVID, which is not a random sample of the population. And so that was an example selection bias. So I think selection bias is a major issue um, that you see a lot of the time. You also see a lot of mistakes, um, you know, sometimes 
nefarious, I guess, honest mistakes, and sometimes they're not so honest, just reporting of just basic statistics, like number of hospital beds available, number of deaths, number of uh, reported cases, using misusing things like cumulative plots to make things look up, to change the arrangement of an XY axis, this, uh, you know, you know, trying to show a downward trend, but mixing up the dates on the X axis. This happened with a public health official in Georgia state, um, although it was taken down and corrected. So I think that was an honest mistake. Um, so there's all sorts of mistakes. I would say the most common, I think the most common mistake is generally a, usually a selection bias, but it's a good question. I, it would take me a little bit to think about what it is. If my colleague was here, Carl Bergstrom, who's not only sort of spent a lot of his career studying misinformation like I have, he spent the first half of his career and still, of course, doing a lot of it, studying infectious diseases and, and, and epidemiology. So he's this unique, he's uniquely positioned to really think about it. So I'd love to get his answer on this. So maybe I'll get back to you on, on uh, what he says he thinks is the most common mistake. Tell us about the Google flu trends website, which you talk about in the book and why it failed, because it was supposed to be a great way of predicting epidemics by basically analyzing the search terms that people were typing in. This is a great example of the excitement of data science and what data can do to help us make decisions. So this was a, um, a project out of Google Research and various other academics that were involved um, that were using search queries as a way of predicting when the flu was to outbreak in various parts of the United States and around the world. The idea is that if you found an excessive amount of fever, headache, chills in their search terms in, let's say, uh, you know, like San Francisco, California, it could be that there's an outbreak there. And, and I think that that logic is still good. Um, uh, but what happened with that is there, there was all this excitement. And I have to admit myself, as I mentioned in the book, I was super excited. I, went, remember, I remember when the paper came out in Nature and I went running you know, to my class and said, okay, look at this paper. We got to read this paper. This is really exciting. This is what data can do. Turns out that year after year, and it wasn't that many years after, it was like two or three years after the project was, um, was uh, unveiled and received international attention, they had to shut the project down because the predictions were so bad. And the predictions were so bad because the model was not incorporating all the changes that were likely happening in the search interface, uh, search, uh, it, like the autocomplete uh, was just coming on board at that time. You also have people's search behavior changing. Um, there's all sorts of things changing, and those models were overfitting on that old, that the original environment and weren't taking into account. But what's crazy is I've seen multiple stories just in the last couple months of other projects saying, aha, we can predict COVID outbreaks now using search queries or social media data. And I love the excitement, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't stop doing some of that research. I think there are indications that that can give some information, but it certainly shouldn't replace the World Health Organization and the CDC and you know decades and decades of, of research showing how they detect it in, 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 in less, uh, you know, less search query ways. So uh, anyway, so I, I think it's a good example of how data can get you excited. And there are ways in which it can provide some information, but it's an example of also us getting too excited about what data can do and what the limitations really of data is. You say one of the biggest reasons for bullshit is people trying to meet targets. Yes, yes. So this is this is something that's been formalized in economics called Goodart's Law. So the idea is as soon as you put out a target as, uh, as a way of measuring the quality of a system or, or, or to measure, you know, the performance of something, that's when it, that's when it ceases to be a good target. Uh, because, pe- because humans... <laughs> 
they're not they're not like uh we call it like when they're not like a uh, you know, ants or although ants may have incentives too, of course, and we don't know for sure. We still need more research there. But humans respond to incentives, and so if you put out, let's say, a p-value of 0.05 for publishing in the scientific literature, or at least a recommended p-value of 0.05, then people respond to that in a way, some t- in ways that aren't always positive. They start doing experiments to get below there, and then pretty soon that's not a good measure. Now, there's also you know universities. Um, are, are, are victims of this all the time. So when, you know, the U.S. News report puts out rankings of, of colleges, um, that, uh, you know, that particular metric, how it's used, is something that the universities are going to start to respond to then. So if they start to respond to those, and they say, oh, okay, it's smaller classrooms. Okay, then we'll split classrooms up, even though there's nothing changing. Then you're not measuring the effectiveness of a university or the quality of a program for students to consider when going to college. You're just looking at the university sort of gaming the system for the most part. So this happens all the time. So look out for any time there's a metric or a measure to, to, to try to separate the you know, people, organizations, you start to see that it becomes less and less useful as, as it gets gamed. Yeah, the classic example of that in Britain, I think, for a lot of people is the NHS when uh, there's a four-hour target if you go to any emergency room. I guess, that's a perfect example. Actually, and, I should use, thank you, Ross. Yeah. That's a perfect example. We should yeah, write about you it. Wait, you wait like three hours, 50 minutes. That's right. Isn't that, that's, oh my <laughs> gosh, that's a perfect one. Thank you for sharing that one. That, I love these examples. That's, that's spot on exactly of what, what uh, Good Arts Law is saying. You compare sharing information whose origin you don't know to picking a sweet off the pavement and eating it, which is pretty powerful. Should we all just stop doing it on social media, given that most of us are not epidemiologists or any other kind of specialist? Well, if nothing else, let's pause a little bit more. One thing that Carl and I say all the time is, you know, think more, share less. I mean, we share so much. We're actually the people that are sharing it. There are, of course, bad state actors out there. There's propagandists. There's opportunists. Absolutely. In fact, this is one thing we look at pretty closely in our center. But really, ultimately, it comes down to us sharing that excrement and so us sort of um, not reading the rest of the story, looking at the headline and going, oh, I got to share this without sort of looking to see whether it's an actual story or not, or whether it's even worth sharing. Is it from a reliable source to do a little bit of work before to add a little bit of friction to the lines, which truly, and I mean this, it maybe sound a little Pollyannish, but I really think the world would be a better place if we would slow down. It doesn't mean we don't share anything. I mean, there's, you know, social media can, can be a powerful tool um, for collective decision-making, but I think we've gone to the extreme and the design interfaces on Twitter and Facebook and other social media are so easy to share and not, it doesn't, it, there's not enough friction to slow us down. And maybe there, you know, maybe there should be a mark that says, I've read it at least, um, and when I read my friends sharing it to me, I could see, okay, they've read it at least. Okay, now I'll, maybe I'll put a little bit more credence into it. But yeah, just it's that sharing. We're the ones sharing and, and propagandists and, and opportunists know that. And so they just kind of hijack current thoughts and biases and, and the kinds of things that cause emotional reaction and then just get it out there. And then we just, we're, we're the ones moving it around and we're the, we're, we're part of the blame. When I say we, the bulk of uh, the society that actually doesn't want a, a polluted information environment, but are the ones that are actually contributing a lot to it. One of the biggest problems is that we have access to more opinion, more expert opinion and more non-expert opinion than ever before. And uh, we, we, trust, we trust quite a lot of it less. And then we talk about trust, particularly in, um, uh, among media academics who I've worked with a bit. They talk about trust as the solution to the misinformation problem. But 
I've always had a problem with that because it's not as simple as that, is it? I mean, you point out in the book that, well, people I trust, for example, Hillary Clinton say they still retweet, retweet crap. Um, if you the, the trouble with placing your trust in individuals is that they almost always let you down. So what's the strategy if if we don't have trust? Trust is so key. In fact, it's become one of the topics that we're reading on weekly in our center now. We're trying to learn, tr- go trust all the way back to when philosophers, you know, you know, the ancient philosophers talked about it to, you know, trust in our current social media environments. Trust is the key. And you're right, like individuals um, do let us down if we expect for them to be, you know, 100% right. And, and they're not going to be. Humans are fallible as, as are organizations. Um, but I think the problem right now is that um, the experts are getting drowned out by these non-experts, even if the non-experts have good intentions. Um, and it's hard to tell expert from non-expert. And it's it's hard. I mean, I study this. I do this. I think about this every single day. This is the, this is what I've devoted my career to. And I find it difficult a lot of times to evaluate, you know, you know, whether a new source that I've never seen is correct. There's there's things that I can go through. There's you know, things that I can do to check an individual article, but it's 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 hard work. And so, you know, we need to think a lot about setting up transparent systems to um, to incur to to sort of foster that trust. I think transparency is a big thing. So, like, if I'm going to a new media outlet and I've never seen them before, you know, there's certain sourcing things I can do. You know, are they a brand new website that just popped up? You know, who funds them? There's all sorts of questions I can ask about the sourcing. I can also look to how they handle getting at the truth? Are they humble about the truth? Do they have retractions and corrections? Do they, do they double down when they're wrong? Do they, are they honest um, when, as much as they can um, when presenting, let's say, through data or whatever? And I think you know, we do have to, at some point, resort or to look to gatekeepers and, and individuals and organizations because a democratic society depends on these institutions because I can't know everything. I can't just reside uh, in my little neighborhood of friends and family and, and, and think that I can answer all the complicated questions in the world. So I, I yeah, it's, it's a really, really hard thing, especially now because there is just a flood of everything from all these non-experts. And it's, it's, it's hard to separate this. So I still think, like, for example, during COVID-19, there is a, a whole bunch of people you can look at, but like Helen Branswell, for example, is is an example of someone. She's a journalist who's been reporting on um, infectious diseases for a long time, and even the experts, the epidemiologists, the experts in the world, look to her. So, as you find that individual, then then at least you can rely on her a little bit more. Now, she may get things wrong too, but a higher probability she's going to get it right. So, she would be a part of a sort of a portfolio of people that I would look to when th- when looking to um, you know something like COVID nineteen. But I think that applies to to other topics as well. Calling out bullshit is tricky unless you have massive confidence in your own intellect. Um, how can we do it so it works? You've got quite a lot of advice in the book on how to do that. Yeah, so we did not call this book Spotting Bullshit. That was sort of already done by Harry Frankfurt. Um, this was a book on calling uh, bullshit. And, and it is very tricky. It's difficult. And you have to be correct. You have to be clear. You have to make sure that you're not attacking character and you're really being careful not to always assume malice. Um, when we, that's kind of our natural reaction a lot of times when we see it. But instead to either assume incompetence, which that's fine, but a lot of times it's just even not even incompetence, just honest mistake. 
And so there's a set of ways in which, you know, and there's some strategies, of course, we talk about some more complicated strategies like reductio ad absurdum and using analogies and all these other kinds of things. We talk about redrawing graphs and there's ways to, to go about calling bullshit. And also it's very important when bullshit's called on us to, to not take offense. I mean, that's hard. We're human. I mean, I, I, can't, I, I can't deny that when I get a review in some of my research papers that are pretty, pretty hard and nasty, a lot of times they're right, actually. It's a lot of times I'm getting it wrong, but it's hard for us to go, yes, that, that makes me smarter. And so something that Carl and I have been doing for, you know, we've been working together for 15, well over 15 years, and we have gotten to the point where we really enjoy it when the other person calls bullshit. So we don't go out in the public and sort of publish a paper that, that, uh, that has holes in it and has gaps. So that we, you know, we, we've gotten comfortable with that. So maybe as a society, I, this might be a little uh, idealistic, but we get to a point where calling bullshit is not about attacking character, but it's one thing that we sort of encourage. And we have to do this in a way that is truly civil. So we start our class and end our class and talk about it often about digital civility and digital citizenship. And I think we need to do more of that. We need to sort of return to civility. It used to be a, a very common topic at universities. If students went to universities, you would talk about civility, civics. And we're not doing that enough, especially in, in the context of the digital world. So yes, I, I, I think calling bullshit is an important thing. And that's why we titled the book, because it's so important that we do that if we're truly going to um, really address this this misinformation crisis, infodemic, or whatever you want to call it, it, it is a serious thing because we can't solve important, you know, some of these big important problems until we get this part right. Joan, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. Anytime. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free and the night before general release if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.